0: Amen. I always like John Newton's hymns and fitting that we speak of bringing petitions to the king as we look at the Lord's prayers preserved for us here in Luke's gospel. We find ourselves in the beginning of chapter 11 in the gospel of Luke and we'll look at verses 1 through 4 today together 1 through 4. This is God's word to us. Now Jesus And lead us not into temptation. Amen. <laughs> the The thing that is set before us here is very familiar to us. Something like the instruments with which you are currently or have just finished eating your lunch. You take a fork and a knife and a spoon in hand and you make means You make use of those instruments as means to bring the the goodness, the enjoyment, the tastiness, the nourishment of that meal to your mouth and to your body for energy. We do the same with our drinks. You have your drinks in cups or some vessel or another. You never drink a drink without a cup to hold the liquid in so that you can bring that that thirst-slaking liquid to your mouth. In our confession, it speaks of prayer in terms like these. They are, prayer is a means to a certain end. It is a means of grace, an instrument to bring us, you and I, to our hungry and thirsty souls, the righteousness of Christ that we so long for, that we so need. And without it, we may not be able to bring it effectively to ourselves, just like a cup or water without a cup. Or to use the language of the catechisms, prayer is a means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. The soul satisfying grace of His high priestly mediation is accessed for us by this very simple means. This thing that we call prayer. And it is a great privilege, is it not, that we, you and I, mere mortals, with short, tiny lives, can come to the infinite, eternal, all-holy God and know that He hears us. It is a great privilege. But nevertheless, it is one that we so often neglect. Do we not? Or if we don't neglect it, we misunderstand it or even misuse it. It's one of those things that is to be such an encouragement to us, but is so often a source of so much discouragement discouragement and trouble. It's one of those areas in the Christian life which causes us much anguish For we know that it is good. We know that it is indeed a great good, but so often we find it a difficult task. And that, I think, is why this text, in particular, is so important for us. So useful to us. Here is We we always want it when we are listening to preaching, do we not? We come to to the service and we listen to the minister and we think, I need real, practical, everyday, black and white, easy to put to use help in my life. And here you go, written in black and white, The most practical help you could possibly find. An order, a pattern, a special rule of direction for all of your praying. And While we could dwell on it, obviously for weeks, there are books upon books written about this prayer. For thousands of years, Christians have meditated on this prayer. We don't have time but to just simply walk through it and glean what we can. Something like the disciples in the grain field on the Sabbath day as they came through those wheat fields were able to grab handfuls and eat what they could knowing that they could come back. And so, it is with us today. We, we can come back here again and again, but for today, let's walk through and take the text as it comes to us. And as we do so, remember what we've just left. Remember last week, we, we were in Martha's house. Remember Martha, busy about many things. She had invited Jesus in. She had been taught a lesson by Jesus. And I think this is important because the lesson that she is taught is at the feet of Jesus in something that looks very much like the posture of prayer. She had come to Jesus with a request in chapter 10, verse 40. Lord, don't You care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. She's making a request, a petition to the king. Her prayer, though, remember, is answered with not exactly a no, but certainly a corrective word from the Lord. Martha, Martha, you're busy about many things and anxious and troubled, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that part which shall not be taken from her. And so she is left there before Him. Martha is before Jesus. And we with her silent, wordless. All that she had is finished being said and now she's before the king and doesn't have anything left to say. And I think it's important that it's in that very place that chapter 11 begins. And this text comes to us and it comes bringing words to us. Words to the wordless. Speech to those who are mute in prayer. Have you ever felt like you were in the place of prayer and had nothing to say in your tongue had nothing to speak. You're full of need, but without the right things to say. Well, here it is. And fittingly, fittingly, it opens with a picture of the one who speaks for us when we have no words, and he, by his speech, loses our tongues. Verse one. It says, "Now Jesus was praying in a certain place," which is an encouragement. When you fail to pray, Jesus doesn't. Jesus is praying. He doesn't fail. He is praying in a certain place. The disciples seem to be aware of it as well. They, they are In some way, at least watching, paying attention, maybe not staring at Him, but out of the corner of their eye, they notice what He's doing. And so it continues, when He finished, also encouraging, Jesus prays, but Jesus also had times when He was done praying and got up from prayer and went about the work that He had to do. And so, for us, and when He finished, when he said his Amen, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray as John has taught his disciples. They ask him to teach about prayer man to man. Like John taught his disciples, so you teach us. And I think that there is, in a sense, it seems, behind this request, a feeling of inadequacy before Jesus is praying. They've seen him pray. And they don't dare ask Him to teach them to pray like He prays. But teach us like John taught. Don't teach us like you did because there's something we might guess otherworldly about His prayer. And too high, we can't attain to it. So just teach us, but teach us like John. Whatever the case may be, Jesus is happy to grant the request. Verse 2, He says to them, when you pray, which clearly entails something, doesn't it, when you pray? He expects it, does He not? He assumes that we, you and I, will pray. Not only that, but He knows we will. And how does He know that we will pray? Well, let me suggest that He knows we will pray just the same as He knew that Martha would come. He who is in charge of our lives, who orders our days, who brings the anxiety or the the situations that cause us anxiety, is the one who knows that those anxious thoughts will force us to our knees, will press us into his presence. We will inevitably be brought before him. God knows how to bring you and I to prayer. If you are his, you won't be prayerless because he knows how to open your mouth and cause you to pray. He will press you into that place. And you will find need in that place for these words. You will lift up your voice to heaven. You will cry out to Him in time of need. You will come and you will need Him to give you what He willingly, freely gives you here, even though you may think that you're not deserving of such a thing. That's too high. Just teach us like John. No, Jesus will meet you where you are and give direction and grounding for your work. As one greater than John He gives you a tool. He gives me and you a tool which is intended to lead us not only into praying with the right words, which is certainly true, but more importantly, I think, into communion with Him, to unite with Him in prayer. We're not only saying the words that He says, But as we say the words that He says, this means of grace brings us into a place where we begin to have the mind to think His thoughts after Him. And that to such an extent that His certain place of prayer is made our own. It is the grace of being like Him and with Him in that place. And it is, remember, a means to that end. And it begins with the simplest of words, doesn't it? Father. Father. I think it's the first word that many of us learned on this earth. I, with my children, like to take them when they're very small and put their hands on my beard and stroke my beard with their hands and say, Daddy, over and over again. Daddy, when I hold them. Because I want them, partly selfishly, to say Daddy before Mommy. But also, I want them to learn the concept of Father. In their Father's arms, protected. Daddy. And eventually, of course, they learn to say the word themselves, and they they join the chorus of the rest of my children, all saying, Daddy, in doing so, notice what happens. They enter by that word, as if through a door, into the reality of being part of a family that they have been born into. And I think it's the same here. Jesus gives us a word of participation in His life as a son in His Father's house. We with Him lift our voice and begin our prayer with His Word, Father, calling on the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as our Father. And so we enter into our world as the world of His Father and ours. This is, as we sing, our Father's world, right? It is a grounding reality. It centers us as does our own place that we call home and family in our common life. It's the place that you always go back to to remember who you are and where you come from so that you can go where you need to go and are called to go, and so here. But then, having brought us into that very common reality and an experience of it in prayer, he adds, hallowed be thy name. And so the close, warm, common feeling of the term father is quickly set apart, and made holy. We pray to God as Father, yes, but in a way that that distinguishes Him from all the rest of our fathers. He is the one from whom all the fathers, Paul writes, receive their name. All fathers on earth receive their name from this Father. All that is good, all that is true, all that is comforting in our conception of fatherhood, whether we've seen it in our own dads or in someone else's dad or in a dad on TV, wherever we find it, it has its root in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who we call upon, hear, and hallow. And the very reality is a thing. Fatherhood is a thing because it finds its being in Him, the fountain of all things. He is, in one way, we could say like our fathers, shares a name, but He is so much not like them. His fatherly care includes things that we're familiar with with our parents, our fathers at home. Discipline, rules, acts of love, words of comfort, a sense of protection, perhaps, but in a way that is higher than and pure and set apart from those things in a way that is almost incomprehensible. Hebrews 12.10 reminds us of these things. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God, the Father to whom we pray, disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. Hallowed, you see, be His name. When we pray, we pray to Him. And ask that in our own hearts of Him and no other. And to this He adds, Your kingdom come. Three words. Your kingdom come. It's a shortened, simplified version of the one that we're used to praying Sunday after Sunday, but it still has the same, same information. It still packs the same punch, we might say. Each word has weight. It begins with Your. And don't we need to say that? We who, like Martha, come burdened into prayer with so much that is ours and, and so many needs that we think we have. And, G- and Jesus gives us a means to turn away from ourselves and turn towards someone else first. Your, your. We need for our good to think about someone other than ourselves. We need to think and pray about what is properly God's. And then he clarifies it further with the second word, your kingdom. It's not a general reflection on everything that's God's. It's not just your stuff, God's, but particularly your kingdom. It's a turn towards that which is His as he is a king. And that communicates a certain something, doesn't it? When we crown the Father with the crown, there's a certain sense of order and purpose in it all. A majesty and a, a strength that communicates crowns and, th- and thrones and throne rooms and, and, and all kinds of regalia. The whole court of, of a king and, and maybe even a certain sense of fear and trembling before one who is a king. Our Father is a king. He has a kingdom. And when you pray, you look away from yourself and toward the kingdom of your Father. And then the third word, the verb, and notice it's a summons, come. The kingdom that is our Father's is not here. And maybe as we're beginning, if you go slowly through it and you're thinking in terms of your kingdom, we may have had it set before our eyes and had in our imagination all the trappings of a kingdom, but with this verb, that is suddenly thrust out away from us and it needs to come. It's not now. We need to ask that it would come. We do not go to it. It comes to us. We can't bring it in. It must must come. We need to pray for the majesty and strength and order of the Father to come. And notice how that orients our gaze. Not only away from ourselves with the your, but away from our present time with a future thing that is not yet that we long to come. Come. Come and all of us know what what it is to live like that don't we we all have this capacity to have in our calendars some day for which we're living in our present whether it's a holiday that's coming up or a deadline that's fast approaching or maybe a birth or some other thing that is in the calendar we we live our daily lives with an eye to the future it's what we're made to do really and Jesus, by this prayer, properly orients that capacity in us so that we live in this present time not for the next holiday or the next deadline, not primarily, but for the Kingdom that's coming. And the desire for that to come. Not, not our birthday, but Jesus and His Kingdom in all of its fullness come. That's what a prayer, this prayer helps us to do to sober us and settle us in that. And then moving on to verse 3, the Lord teaches us next to ask the Father to give. And it is communal. He says, give us. That's what we pray. Not just give me. Give us. It's not a solo mission. It's not just me and Jesus Quietly together, and even when it is just me and Jesus quietly in my prayer closet, I pray this prayer and I'm praying with all of you. And all of us are praying with all of the saints who have lived before him from the very beginning of time, and even those who will come after us. We never pray alone. G.K. Chesterton writes about his own conversion. Uh, some of you may know that name. He was an essayist in the early 1900s. And, he, he wrote of his own conversion and he spoke of it in terms of, of a, a, an explorer who, who's found a new and uncharted island for himself. And, you know, he's been in the ocean drowning, and finally he comes to a place and he's so excited to find it, he, 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 he wants to claim it for his own. And he gets out his flag, and just as he's about to plant the flag in the ground to claim it as a, as a, a newfound land for his own name. He suddenly looks up to find that he is not on a deserted island, but in England. And England has been inhabited for many, many hundreds of years, and people have charted it and known it from, for a long time before G.K. Chesterton had arrived. You see, we say, give us. We're not by ourselves. We're part of a great company. And members of that church Catholic, and as members of the church locally at IPC, we pray, give us each day, our daily bread. And what are we recognizing or calling on when we calling for? What are we asking God for when we pray for our daily bread? Well, I think that we all get in some way that we're asking for Him to feed us today. We all need to eat. We just did. Some of us still are. We have to have daily nourishment, sustenance. But I think it's more than that. I think it's more than just immediate nourishment. It is also... Preparation for the future in that present nourishment. Just consider Israel in the wilderness as they used to gather the manna day after day to fulfill their daily needs. They received their daily nourishment as bread from heaven, gathering it up, eating it every day, and so they were prepared to receive the one who would come and be their nourishment and say of himself, I am the bread of heaven their daily meal was preparing them for a coming day. Their gathering up that particular food and receiving it as a gift from God was preparing them to receive the ultimate gift of God. And so you and I eat, even today, and our eating is just a preparation for a greater feast that's coming, is it not? And don't we want our food to point us that direction and not just to full stomachs now? We ask for bread and we are seeking that which accords with the kingdom which we pray will come. And we ask it in a sense as though all of our meals are wave upon wave of that approach like Esau, like Jacob who sent all the gifts before him as he approached his brother Esau in the Old Testament. All of it signs that someone is coming. And so to further ready ourselves for such a coming, we pray verse 4, and forgive us of our sins. Why? Because the One who's coming is not just a king, but as all kings were in the ancient world, He's also a judge. He comes to take His seat, and we must be ready to stand before His feet in that hallowed place. And so we pray, fittingly, Oh, forgive us of our sins. And as often as we ask for bread, we seek it, do we not? We pray for bread and we pray for forgiveness almost in the same breath because it is as necessary as eating that we have this in His presence. Apart from such forgiveness, the rest, all of it, is worth nothing. It will be burnt in the fires. So give us bread. And with it, give us forgiveness. We must have both. And then, I think the most unexpected part even though we're familiar with it, I still think it's not what I would have expected had I been writing this prayer myself. He adds something that looks very much like a condition to our prayer. Does He not? He says in the second half of verse 4, forgive us for, or since, we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Notice it's two categories. Forgive us our sins trespasses against God alone. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what was wrong as we forgive those who are indebted to us. The little trivial things that we hold as as a list of wrongs that have been done against us. He says, as we do those things, we pray as we do forgive them for these things, you forgive us for that greater thing. And it says, everyone, forgive everyone who is indebted to us. There's, There's no one excluded from that. It is very matter of fact. We forgive everyone who is indebted to us. There's no language about what they do to receive it or how they are made worthy for it. And it is communal. We ourselves, all of us, you and I, are called to it by our prayer. And the prayer, you see, in many ways, it's already taught us a number of things about the experience of being brought into the blessedness that is ours in Christ. We find God is our Father ourselves as members of a community of faith in a family. We're led into the understanding of that in terms of the dynamics of a kingdom and a king. We are fed. We are forgiven. But all those things, until this last little petition that we're on now, seem to be outside and objective. And this one this one changes that. It's a prayer for an internal change. A new heart. A new will. I mean, think about it. The, the, literally, the motive is knit into the prayer. If you pray sincerely the prayer that our Lord taught us and ask that God forgives you as you forgive, then what does it make you want to do? Forgive, right? Who doesn't pray that and go, man, I really need to forgive more? I find myself praying that and then praying that He would forgive me for me not being forgiving enough because I know that I'm not. The motive is knit into it. It makes you want to forgive. Praying this prayer and meaning what we say will in that way change us. It will shape our desire. It will make us want to be forgiving and merciful and therefore like Jesus. Like God in Christ, the prayer brings us to a place where we find that we want Christ-likeness. We want it in such a place it is fitting than to add that last bit, is it not? And lead us not into temptation. What is that a prayer for, but asking, having been brought to a place where we want likeness, to keep us from being tempted to leave it? Let us not be drawn away into some other frame of mind where we want something other than this to be like You, to be with You in prayer, to speak and say Your, your words and think Your thoughts. Deliver us from a temptation to go wander into some other disposition of heart. It's a, it's a request for deliverance, not from difficulty or, or hard times. We're not asking in this petition to escape the cross, not at all. For that would be to escape Christ crucified, our Lord in His way. It is a petition rather to be kept from slipping, from falling, away from that place, from the cross out of the way of suffering and Christlikeness into selfishness into making god like ourselves into seeking our own kingdoms let us not be tempted to eat bread for full bellies and forget the coming day let us not be tempted to grow cold and hard hearted against all those who are indebted to us let us not be tempted to live life outside of and far away from you o lord keep me Keep us in Your grace. By this prayer, by this means, Oh, lead us not into such temptation. And with that, in Luke, the prayer ends. You almost want more. It's sudden and without flourish. And even without the requisite, Amen, let it be so. And maybe even that in the end is intentional. It is open-ended. Because our prayer leads us to more prayer. Just as our life here leads us into another life eternally. Our communion with God, the grace that is a means toward that end, shall never end. And this prayer is the very beginnings of that. It's open-ended because all of it is. And we're headed to that fullness and eternal reality where we will share in communion with God forever and ever without end. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, O Lord, for giving us a pattern for prayer. Father, we ask you would forgive us for not making use of it as we should. And we pray, O Lord, that as we come into the place of prayer with You, that You would remind us of this pattern and that we would so make use of it that we might be conformed to the image of Your Son and so walk in this world as He once walked, to be with Him where He says, I am. We ask it in His name. Amen.